Hi folks, and maybe good morning, depending on where you are, good afternoon, whatever it is, whatever, it is, whatever time of day you're listening to this, I uh, hope you're having a good one. This is our conversation with Professor Richard Murphy, who listeners will recall was on about uh, two months ago now, and well, you loved him, so we got him back on, and he broke down what is breaking down in the UK. Again, fantastic to get to talk to Richard, we're really grateful that he gives us his time, because I mean, it was so funny, it was one of those situations where he literally went, I have just been on with uh, James O'Brien and LBC, and now I'm slumming it on the tortoise shack he he didn't say slumming it I, I added that in if you want to hear these podcasts as quickly as we can turn them around if you want to help keep these mics on if you like what we do or even if you hate what we do but you think it's worth keep going please join us it's patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack it means we keep the mics on and we keep having conversations like this one you don't have to listen to them with the plea me asking you you get them all as quickly as we turn them around in one consolidated patreon feed so you don't have to get you don't have to look for reboot you don't have to look for glow west you don't have to look for any of them they're all in the one place one-stop shop with now over a thousand and fifty podcasts right there for you in our back catalogue thanks for listening thanks for supporting thanks for telling people about it please consider joining us one more time patreon.com forward slash tortoise and enjoy another great conversation with professor richard murphy Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves and we are back talking about the politics and economics of the UK. Uh, but before we do that, it's it's actually a special occasion. It's um, Wednesday morning. It's raining outside, but it's before 11 a.m. And Martin, you were you were joining us. So this is the first time since 2017. Yeah, 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 yeah. Go on, rub it in, yeah, rub yeah. it in. He's, he's not look, a morning person. When you when you said to me, look, if a podcast, it's really early in the morning, but we're talking about the UK going to shit. I went, oh. Absolutely, have to be up for that one. That's 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 unfair. That's not what I said. It's 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 a dramatization of what I said. Um, but we we are thrilled, and I mean thrilled to be rejoined on the podcast by economic justice campaigner, professor of accounting, and uh, one of the best follows, as people know on on social media, uh, Richard Murphy. Richard, thank you so much again for taking the time to talk to us. It's great to see you again. Thanks for asking me on this wonderful morning where we yeah. have a new government in the UK where children were dancing on their way to school. The bunting is up for the street party tonight. There is light, joy, and I'm bullshitting like hell. <laughs> <laughs> well, can I use what you what you actually wrote your own words, if you don't mind? You wrote, yesterday was so bad that we have no choice now but to think about the world we want after neoliberalism. Trust has created a far-right government intent on destruction. We have to imagine a better world if we are to survive. Richard, what what is that better world? What does it look like? Because, yes, I agree with you on um, that. Well, maybe Truss hasn't created this far right world, but the, the situation that led to her becoming prime minister has led to that far right government definitely intent on driving us there where the point is she's making point after point of saying trickle down is the way we're going to double down on. You know, um, the, the cure for hyper neoliberalism is mega hyper neoliberalism. What where do we push back? We have to push back and we have to push back on ideas. Remember, the whole of the basis of what Truss is doing is neoliberal thinking. It's pure neoliberal thinking. And what worries me enormously about Truss is the range of advisors that she has brought in to support her in Downing Street, people from the Taxpayers Alliance, an anti government movement based upon the thinking of neoliberalism, which says there's nothing that the government can do that the market won't do better. People from the Institute of Economic Affairs founded in ooh, 1955, I think one of the, you know, the whole range of neoliberal think tanks created in the 50s and at active ever since, funded by, we believe, but they aren't open about this, major industrialists from the right wing who are determined to limit the role of the state in people's lives and to keep taxes to the minimum possible. And we have allowed over the last 40 years this thinking, which of course was first adopted by Thatcher and Reagan, to become dominant so that in fact it is the thinking not just of, in the UK, the Conservative Party, but also the thinking of the major opposition party, Labour, and to some extent, the thinking of the Liberal Democrat Party. And it certainly is dominant inside the Scottish National Party um, to talk about what is actually the third party in the UK House of Commons and the major party in Scotland. And so we have this predominant, the market knows best thinking everywhere. Now, that's not true. Um, and I say that as somebody who has been senior part of the firm of accountants, has run companies, has employed a lot of people, is unashamed about the fact that I have made profit on occasions for companies and others, and, and 
and think that that's okay within the right social construct and the right social responsibility. So I am not somebody who says private property is necessarily bad or that business is necessarily bad because I don't think it is. But I do think when it's unfettered in the way that they believe it should be, then we actually see a breakdown in the social contract. And they have engineered that breakdown, which I think we are getting very close to, to the point where I am very worried that People are telling me this cannot be got through without unrest, by which they basically mean rioting. They aren't talking about the odd demo. I think that quite ordinary people are now talking about the fact that they are in such fear that they will not get through this without major protest. Now, the alternative is that we have to, and we have done a lot of the thinking around this, but we have to put forward the alternative narrative based upon a social contract, based upon social democracy, effectively based upon democracy itself and the need for accountability and transparency, the need to create a process where each person lives in community. We recognise the value of community. We reject Thatcher's there is no society. Yeah, I know it's a sort of misquote, but it nonetheless did reflect what she said um, or thought. And it certainly reflects what those people who have now entered Downing Street think, that there is no such thing as society. And therefore, we have to actually begin to project these alternatives. Now, look, I've tried to do this before the Green New Deal. I co-wrote, and at one point that was seemingly creating great ideas. It has, to be honest, I think a little bit lost its way. How do I know that? Well, in the UK, Jacob Rees-Mogg is now the um, business secretary responsible for climate change. We must have lost our way if that's the consequence of our campaigning over the years. And I helped create the Tax Justice Network, which had significant impact at some points, particularly with things like Uncut and the other protest movements around 2010, where many of the ideas came out of what we were saying in the Tax Justice Network. So I know it's possible to create ideas, but what we're not creating are ideas that stick and ideas which spread hard and fast enough. And I'm sorry about this rather long monologue in answer to your first question, but my point is now that we have got to get out to people the idea that these ideas are there, are deliverable, match their own thinking, and will make their lives better. So I'm not talking about the need to go away and rethink from scratch precisely what we're talking about. The idea of a social contract, the idea of social democracy, the idea that it is okay to live in a mixed state, the idea that government has a role in providing essential services which are otherwise delivered by private monopolies, which all always abuse the idea that there is a social contract which requires those with more to pay greater into the pot than those who have not. All these things are known, and yet they're being destroyed. And we have to restore people's confidence that that is possible to create a new social consensus. That's what I think the job is to do. And we need to go on and talk about that all the time, not spend our lives now saying, oh, neoliberalism is neoliberalism. But, but is, is, is Liz Truss not doing that? I mean, if you listen to what she's saying, then you don't really have to worry about the future. You just have to trust in Liz Truss. Yeah, but Liz Truss does that in a very particular way. Look at the people who influence her in terms of her thinking. You know, she's pure Buchanan. She's Patrick Minford. These people are rational expectations economists. You don't worry about the future because actually in their economics, the future doesn't exist. The moment that they say something is going to happen, for example, we are going to solve the energy uh, crisis by changing the prices, then rational people will stop worrying, she says, because they know she's now set the energy price cap at £2,500 in the UK, at which point you think, well, life is wonderful then again. Hence my joke about people are out and going to have a street party tonight. The fact that that is... 150% more than they were paying in April 2021 is beside the point. They are apparently going to be thanking her and believing that she is their great saviour. Look, the world doesn't work like that. Um, economics is very much based around two, on the right, the conventional economics of the world is still based around two camps. Um, they were once called, I think Paul Krugman did it, and I'm not a great fan of Paul Krugman on all issues, but I think this was one of his creations where he said that there are the... Um, the um, saltwater and the freshwater economists. The freshwater economists are based around Chicago, in other words, the big lakes in America, uh, and that's the, the, the uh, freshwater economists. And they believe that when you say something, it happens. There is no future because the mere intention to do it means that people build that expectation into their thinking now. 
The alternative is the saltwater economists. Now, these are the neo-Keynesians. And what the neo-Keynesians do is say, well, we've said we're going to do it and people will believe us, but there will be a period of adaptation. And the role of the state is to help period during the period of adaptation until we reach the new nirvana, whatever that might be. Then there's people like me who say, actually, no, you're still assuming that the market can provide an ultimate nirvana equilibrium, as uh, an economist would, could call it, which absolutely scares for the living daylights out of me, this concept of equilibrium, that there is a moment where the world can get no better. Because I'm always worried that A, I might be asleep when that happens, or B, I will be with the wrong people when that happens and no party will be going on. And therefore, it will be possible to get better than that one particular moment they've chosen as the best there will be. I don't believe that. I don't believe there's stability either in the world, which is implicit in that. So there is some point where we're absolutely perfect. We don't want to change anything. I think we'll always want to change anything. So I think that whole thinking, is madness, um, <laughs> bluntly mad, literally so far removed from the reality of what human existence is, that it is reflecting of something that doesn't exist. Now, in that case, we actually need to have a rethinking of economics to what is real. And there are people who are doing that. There are real, you know, there's people who are doing donut economics around sustainability. We're talking about, you know, real economic networks. We're talking about modern monetary theory. We're talking about people who are discussing like um, Steve um, Keen and you know the ideas around Minsky and how we don't end up with stable but unstable equilibrium, if you like, but where we can create better solutions and we secure compromises at best. Now, all of those things can happen, and we try to achieve the best outcome that is possible. But Liz Truss's claim that she is the answer is just straightforwardly bizarre in that context, because there are a tiny number of Tories who might think that but the rest of the world doesn't. And she's clearly deluded to say that I will deliver. I mean, it was a phenomenal speech she gave out yesterday. Most of the focus was on delivery, i.e. process. Mm. We didn't even hear what she was going to do or how she was going to do it. She was just going to do a process of delivery. And this, again, is complete delusion. What we actually know, uh, we need to go back to basics and say, what are the fundamentals that will make our life good? And that is meeting need, getting access to some of our wants. They, they strike me as, you know the old phrase, how do you how do you make a, a, a small fortune? And so you start with a big one. Yeah. yeah. There's a similar sort of mindset here at play because, you know, there's some of the Tories came to power. I think the UK was, was it the sixth or fourth largest uh, economy in the world at the time? And now they're termed an emerging nation. Well, <laughs> you know, we, I, I think we'll end up a failing state at the current rate of progress. And I think there's a real risk of that. And actually, I mean, I'm not the first person to say this. And I, I'm sorry, I can't actually remember the person who I saw say it a few days ago on Twitter. It was a professor. Um, and I honestly can't remember who. Um, but they discussed the idea of the UK as a failed state. Now, what's a failed state in this context? Most people will think of Somalia or places like that. And of course, that is one of the models. But when you see a fundamental breakdown in the services that underpin society, which is the risk that we face in the UK now. We have a failing National Health Service. We have the chance that schools will not be open, able to be open this winter for five days a week. We have care homes that are likely to shut. And where will the elderly go who are in their care? We have the chance that social services will basically fail because the demand on them is so high and the number of people available is so low. I could keep going on, let alone we face the risk that the energy that people need to live literally keep themselves and their businesses going will simply be unaffordable. That's a failed state. The market will have delivered this failed state where literally nothing's going to work. And is there a chance of that happening? Yeah, I really think there is a chance of that happening. That's what scares the living daylights out of what's, me. That's why I keep talking about it. What scares the living daylights out of me is that we are all those things and worse in Ireland. We have less security of energy supplies than the UK has, but we're not talking about any of these. But we don't. We, we we are talking about. We don't have as good. We can. Ireland has facing an energy crisis. Absolutely. We we had, as I said last night before we came here, we were discussing the minister for the environment telling us to, you know, okay, stay warm but not too warm. All of this, you know, infantilization of of Irish people. We don't. We don't have the UK's infrastructure, like we don't have a proper, we, we never had a functional NHS. We never had ser several of the networks that, that they had. So we don't have those failed safes. That's why 
when during COVID, we had to have those big lockdowns because we knew we had the lowest level of emergency beds available in, in the OECD. So when you don't have the emergency beds, you face a collapse of your health system. That's why we had those things, because we we're, we're, we don't have the infrastructure, or the resources. So we are having those conversations. We're just a bit more... Um, docile perhaps in in uh, in how we express our outrage and uh, and I do think that that that's something that we can maybe it's a whole other conversation but when it comes to the UK the UK still has this mindset that it's you know there is still that unfortunately that mentality and you hear it you know rule Britannia we see it now where our best days are ahead global Britain leveling up all of these phrases which Richard have have delivered nothing in terms of the balance sheets or, or the books. In fact, people are worse off than when this when this um, rhetoric started to ramp up. And well, they are worse off. There's no doubt about that. I mean, I mean, if we talk about security, and I mean, I know a bit about Ireland, not as much obviously as you guys, and not as much as the people are going to be listening, but I know a little bit. Um, you know, we're going to end up with absurd situations. As you're probably going to end up with people saying, "Start burning peat again in Ireland" or something. Already you know, happening. Yeah, and the same as we've got, we must open the coal mines again, or we must go and find the last dreg of gas in the North Sea again. Um, and all of those disastrous things that we know we should not have done, but which we did in the past, and when we you know, didn't know better, um, then they're going to be back on some people's agendas again. And that's going to be the solution, the grand old days we didn't have this problem. Or what's the problem with having ice on the inside of your window? Look, I remember having ice on the inside of the window when I was a kid. And do you know what the problem? was of it was it was bloody miserable that's what the problem of it was um and huddling around the heater before going to school whilst having a bit of breakfast was not fun and i mean that's serious that i remember it and we were by any means the hardest up household in the uk at the time but ice on the inside of the windows was normal i don't want to see that again we don't need that again we can do better than that again uh, partly because we should be insulating every house in the uk and ireland to the greatest possible degree to make sure that such things will never be needed again because because heat can be preserved inside the building and will reduce our energy consumption. But nobody talks about the way forward. They look at the way back. And this whole rule Britannia and God knows what other bullshit, which I find really rather annoying, is part of that because it's, oh, we're a wonderful nation and it's exceptionalism and it's an imperialism and it's terribly English. And we actually see that because the attitude from England towards, let's be blunt, Wales, Northern Ireland, Scotland, and of course, towards Ireland as well, because, you know, on occasions you're part of us. You didn't know that. But you still are when you the English feel like it. Um, they'll adopt because well, you speak the same language, so you can't be far away. But you we're, know. we're, we're quite that, happy. That absurd attitude is there. It's imperialism that lets people say this, and because they feel superior, they live with the inconvenience, the destruction that goes on all around them. I'm not willing to live with that. I think fewer and fewer people will be, and I think people are going to see it. And I think that realization has dawned on people that actually. The proverbial is going to hit the fan in a very big way when you can't pay not just your heating bill, but your existing debts, your car loan, your mortgage, your rent, your water, your council tax, all those other essential things you've got to pay for. And you've got to juggle them until the point comes where there's no juggling left possible. And that's going to hit a lot of households very soon. The idea that rural Britannia is enough to keep us going is actually going to dawn on people. It's also going to dawn on them that you know, Brexit has already accounted for, well, we were on our fourth prime minister and it's accounted for the last three. This is not working. Britain isn't working is now the only three phrase word that you need to, you know, that, that we need to know because we aren't working. It's as simple as that. But the lang- you were talking about neoliberal language. And, you know, if you compare global Britain to the language that we'd use here as Ireland, a uh, country at the centre of the world, it's basically the same neoliberal language. It is basically the same. But the appointment of the Northern Ireland minister, and I swear to God, I had to look up where he was from. I thought I know the UK. I had absolutely no idea that place he was from. I wasn't... Um, I can't even remember the bloody name of it, but I had to look it up last night and say, you know, what does he really have in common with any of the the issues that are there? And then I saw that he was a bit, uh, not a bit, quite hawkish 
in the EU when he was in there. He's, so, so Chris Heaton Harris. Let's say the man's yeah, name. Chris Heaton Harris. And and he's from uh, the the, uh, the the great the great area of Daventry. But, That's but, Daventry. <laughs> <laughs> Which is bang in the middle of the Midlands. Let's yeah, be clear. Yeah, yeah. But I, one thing I discovered the other day when I was looking um, at the we were watching the you know all these this footage was coming out, Martin, of the queues of people trying to get uh, through the Channel Tunnel and and the the, the tailbacks to Dover is that um, it's it's just up the up the road. Is, is sandwich and beside sandwich is deal so sandwich deal is an actual place not just something you get in in, the, in your spar um, but, <laughs> yeah. but, but, um, but but looking at this gentleman uh, he's now going to give him an opportunity but some of the things he said would make me think he's been a sandwich short of a picnic several times over the last number of years well look he's a member of the European research group he's a Brexit hardliner um, he, as far as we can see, has almost no experience on this issue. Um, Daventry is right in the middle of England. It's like appointing somebody from Offaly to be the minister for Northern Ireland, you know, bang in the middle um, sort of place. Um, has no relationship um, to anything to do with Northern Ireland at all. Um, his language in the past has been pretty aggressive around the European Union. It doesn't look like um, he's going to do anything other than, of course, break the Northern Ireland Protocol um, because he believes that it doesn't apply. International law will not be sitting here. He is a nobody, by the way. Let's be blunt. Why did you not know him? Why did you not know where he came from? Because, frankly, I don't really know where he is either. Um, who he is either. I've never really heard of him. He's never featured much on anybody's discussion list. Well, on if the, if the rumors are to be true, he was about the fourth, fifth person down the call, uh, Rolodex, who actually accepted the job. Like, if the rumors are true. Almost certainly true, because this is a poison chalice, let's be blunt, isn't it? I mean, we know full well that the Northern Ireland Protocol... It, oh, trust is determined that it will not be honoured um, and that's, you know, her belief. It's She made it clear at the Foreign Office. We know it's probably going to be um, reneged upon within days um, as an early indication of her stance towards Europe. So Europe has put out very clear um, statements of intent as to what will happen in that case. Um, and this person, Chris Heaton-Harris, but whoever was going to be the Northern Ireland Secretary, was going to pick up you know, the crossfire for this. Um, and you have to be pretty darn stupid to have actually chosen or desperate to be in government um, in a post that, frankly, nobody else wanted, um, You know, to take this poison chalice of delivering of Truss's aim of upsetting the EU and creating further stress and conflict, potentially in Northern Ireland. But I mean, the theme of the blog that I put out this morning, and I didn't actually mention Northern Ireland in there, and I realised I should have done, of course, um, that's an omission. Um, but well, that's can point. I say Liz Truss did, never mentioned it either in her speech? Well, no, she didn't. Um, she mentioned some pretty odd things. I mean, a prime minister for the UK who comes in and says her biggest priority is building more roads at, at this moment Clearly, and that was the first thing she mentioned. I doubt if there's a single person in the UK who thought, God, that was nine number one as well. <laughs> I mean, literally not a single person could have thought that. Every town and village near as damn it has got a bypass. We don't need any other major motorways. We might need some darn good railways. We might need some good new tram systems. We might need investment in the local rail services of many parts of the country. We might need a decent bus network because that's been massively underinvested in. We might need alternative energy sources to fund our, you know, fuel our transport, but more roads. I don't think anyone believed that was the priority at this point. Is, is, the, is the eye on the wrong ball when they're looking at Northern Ireland? And yet Scotland is on the verge, is absolutely on the verge of just walking away from the union. Well, I mean, I write a regular column for the only um, nationalist newspaper in Scotland, The National. Um, I write from every week. Um, and so by tonight, I'll be thinking about what I'll be writing about tomorrow morning. I haven't a clue as yet. Um, so you can tell where my colours are on that issue because I write uh, for them. Um, 
Is Scotland on the verge of walking away? Look, a bit over 50% in Scotland probably are persuaded. And trusts will, if anything, be a better recruiting sergeant for the nationalist cause in Scotland than Johnson was. It's hard to believe, but I think she could be. Uh, she will be the final proof in the pudding that, you know, frankly, this is it. You know, it's time to go. Scotland can do better than this. And I genuinely believe that it's the case. A country of five and a half million or so people um, with very strong natural resources, amazing natural resources available to it. Um, wind power, tidal power, solar power, even, because, you know, they actually do manage that. Hydro and, and, power. And, and they I just want to let listeners know, companies that actually are providing energy offshore, wind energy right now in, on, on this UK grid via Scotland, were uh, Irish born and, and moved there because we didn't resource them here. And in, in, in some of them, like they, some of the guys actually were based off the west, west coast of Ireland and ended up providing it to the UK because we let them slip through our fingers. Yeah. Um, anyway, sorry, Richard. So, so, think- so the, the risk that Scotland will go is high. Um, absolutely high. And, you know, Nicola Sturgeon is playing a blinder. I don't actually agree with Nicola Sturgeon on quite a lot of things. She's very neoliberal for a start. Um, and I don't agree with her economic policies very much at all. And I think um, I'm probably a bit of a pain in the backside as far as she's concerned by saying that most weeks. But I don't care. Uh, my point is that she has a lot of support and she's an astute politician. Look what she did yesterday. She announced a rent freeze. In yeah. mm-hmm. I mean, you could not have thought up something clever on the day in question, to actually say to people, I'm on your side. Um, when Liz Truss is coming in and actually announcing policies which are going to give rise to increases in the UK interest rate, substantial increases in the UK interest rate, which are going to make in- mortgage rate increases for UK households look uh, make energy price increases look tiny uh, in comparison, because people are going to be seeing, I reckon, mortgage rate increases of up to £600 a month in the UK. And nobody is seeing that in their energy bills, not the private consumption they are in businesses. Then, I mean, yeah, this this is just <laughs> she she came out with a rent freeze Incredible. and an eviction ban and a cap. Yes. And I mean, like um, Liz Trust talked about building roads. So, you know, like, I mean, we had during our during the pandemic here, we had a rent freeze and an eviction ban and um, a pandemic unemployment payment that made that was nearly 55 percent above what, what we were paying people who, who may, may have lost their jobs, you know, so unemployment benefit. And we showed what was possible while our economy, as you know, Richard, was still actually ticking over nicely in the background because we have um, a two tier economy. I'll put that politically for, for now. Um, and yet we managed to show. And now, we, now we're telling people as homelessness here is exceeded 10,500 10, for the first time in, in the history of the state. We're telling people we can't do these things that we did actually 18 months ago um, because it would, you know, it would spook the markets and <laughs> it didn't spook. Them and, 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 and as I understand it, the rental property market in Ireland is as bad as it is in London. Just yes. Um, oh. And, you know, impossible. I, I'm, I'm with, so, I have sons who are 20 and 21 and they say, where the hell are we going to find somewhere to live? Uh, and it's a reasonable question. And all their friends are saying that. And there is a, a very powerful generation of students just coming out of universities whose lives have been messed up by COVID, whose lives have been messed up by uh, uh, university teacher strikes. Um, yeah, I plead guilty. Um, and um, But for good reasons, because university teachers, amongst many other public servants, have had their lives messed up by the government. And these people are, are really pretty angry and fed up um, with what they're seeing. And yeah, trust needs to be really worried because underpinning trust's whole worldview, let's just explain what underpins her worldview and what she thinks is going to happen. I talked in that blog uh, thread this morning or Twitter thread this morning about the idea of creative destruction. Um, this idea, which comes from the Austrian School of Economics, is that you need to actually clear the deadwood out of the economy to lay the groundwork for the new springs, uh, you know, growth of uh, enterprise to happen. And their belief is that we have vast numbers of companies um, in the world economy, and they believe this is true of Ireland as they would of the UK, but basically surviving on low interest rates and fundamentally government support of some sort, whether it's through wages or or anything else, because they would claim that benefits are a wage subsidy, which lets these companies survive because they couldn't survive if they had to pay proper wage rates. 
said they should get rid of benefits, then they'd have to pay proper wage rates and these companies would fail. They literally think that's what they want because they call this creative destruction. Get rid of these companies and there will be these wonderful new entrepreneurial companies that emerge into the world, which are going to happen as soon as the dead weight is removed. This is the creative destruction idea. As if there are millions of entrepreneurs out there with full ideas who are just saying, yeah, I do it, except we haven't got a Liz Trust to actually clear the ground for us to create the way for our new idea, which is so wonderful to meet the need. Look, the only things that I can see coming out of Liz Trust, and I said it again, I can see there will be um, private health scammers of some sort or other, and there will be people trying to offer insurance for your uh, social care for old age, and all sorts of other financial products which will be sold to try and provide you with the security the state's not going to supply. But that apart, we're not going to see anything else at all. There's, not know, gonna, the, there's no innovation in, in There is in that. no t- innovation and, here at all. What we need is sustainability. What we need is investment in the Green New Deal. What we need is social infrastructure. What we need is a world where people can feel that they can live without fear. And at the moment, people are living in fear. And fundamentally, the difference between, I guess, the ideas that I'm interested in and the ideas that she's interested in is she wants to create that fear and I want to remove that fear. That's the fundamental difference of approach, which I think we need to have. And Labour here, and frankly, many of the political parties in Ireland are simply not removing that fear. They're not capable of removing the fear. And that's the truth of it. They really... It's too short termism or everything they do is so short termism that they're not. It's all about reelection. It's not about solving problems. It's about reelection. But you spoke about unrest in the UK at the start of this. Hungry people. And we've said this before. Hungry people are angry people. Cold people are angry people. It's at critical mass in the UK. And if it's not added, it'll be added very shortly where there are enough cold and hungry people to make a difference. It doesn't need 50%. It doesn't need 40% or 30%. 10% is more than enough. What happens then? Well, it's a very good question. I'll tell you a little anecdote. This is from 2008. In 2008, I was fairly close to the Treasury in the UK, and I knew for well we were going to have banks falling over in October 2008. And actually, I took a pile of cash out of the bank because I reckoned that there wouldn't be cash machines working by the end of the weekend in the middle of October 2008. Well, actually, Alistair Darling, of course, bailed out a lot of banks that weekend. And so he kept the banks open. And he was, you know, he did the absolutely right thing to keep the banks open. Because I put it to my wife, we may not have cash next week. And she said, well, hang on a minute, that's a a problem. So get cash out. And I said, look, that may not be a problem. That may not solve the issue anyway. Because Tesco or Morrison's or whoever else it might be won't be open to sell the food because they won't be able to bank the money. They won't have any payment systems in operation. There will be no food supply. And she said, "Okay, I'm a mother. And at that point, those sons I've already referred to were little fellas. And she said, a mother who's got little fellas will steal to feed her children. And it doesn't matter who they are. They will steal to feed their kids. And this was, let's be blunt about it, a general practitioner doctor saying, I'll steal to feed my kids if necessary, you know, looking like a pillar of society. Now, the point you're making is what happens. The answer is that people who are desperate will do what is necessary to feed their kids. And can you really blame them? No. And the interesting point is that, in fact, it is the women of who feel this more strongly, I feel. Men are slightly more detached to some extent. They'll try and find a different way around it. Women literally, and I'm not ter- being terribly sexist about this. I hadn't got to the point of thinking I was going to fe- steal to feed the kids. But my wife had. Um, that wasn't where I got to. I was dealing with the technicalities of it. Now, that may say something about me um, and her practicality, I don't know. But the point is, I think that actually the average UK household, and I bet Ireland isn't that different from this, has around nine meals available in the store cupboard. Now, if you're lucky, you might have a bit more. Um, But on average, it's nine meals that most people can immediately think up from what's in the cupboard, apparently. And and looking at that figure, okay, so let's again, this goes back to this idea of are we a failed state? And people go, oh, don't do that. You can't say we're a failed state. Look at Afghanistan. And you're going, well, Afghanistan has, you know, 40, 40 percent of people in food insecurity. Do we really want to use that as the benchmark? No. Do we really want, you know, do should we accept that having less and 
is actually okay because it's worse somewhere else. Uh, um, and you know, and there's a, there's some sort of um, hierarchy of uh, of of you know, well, no progression without regression is one of the phrases I, I've I've been using for years. But this nonsense of we have, you know, it's okay if it's worse elsewhere. And something else worries me now, Richard. And this is from an Irish perspective. Is we're going our budget's coming soon. All the kites are flying, all the budget kites, all these uh they've yeah. you know, they're throwing them into the sky and they're promising, you know, one off, here's 200 quid off that electricity bill, whatever it's gonna be towards your back to school allowances, X, Y, and Z. They're saying total spend 6.7 billion, uh one billion in tax cuts. Don't ask me to go there why we're having tax cuts when when we, we're not investing in in enough in infrastructure, nonetheless. But we spent a decade post global financial crisis in Ireland, as you know. We had the bailout. We mm-hmm. had the we had the troika here, mm-hmm. and we were told we have to have austerity because we need to adhere to the EU's uh, fiscal compact and the debt to GDP ratio. Now we have a six point seven billion budget coming. It'll probably be more now as as the government are starting to get wary. But if we played within the rules of the fiscal compact, we could go closer to twelve billion. So we're actually doing it on the cheap because our economy as a such can carry the this this debt because it looks so big. Yet people are accepting less because it's now been framed. We had to have austerity. Now what we're having is um, dealing with the cost of living crisis on the cheap. And that really pisses me off, to be honest with you. I think it's a failing of media as well to not call that out and say, well, hang on, why were we told we could play within these rules for a decade? And now when we can actually lessen the burden on people why are we stepping away from it well the other thing that you pointed out there implicitly in what you just said was if they're terrified that they can't sustain a level of spending and you've also already pointed out that your treasury is lousy at forecasting maybe deliberately but if that's the case and they've got five plus billion they could play with now then that five plus billion should be spent but it should be spent on the development that is essential for Ireland, that is infrastructure. Now, whether that is to meet social need, and I've mentioned, you know, every country, and Ireland is no exception, has houses that need to be insulated. It has roofs that need insulation. It has double glazing and triple glazing. It has solar panels that could be installed. It has wind farms that can be thought about. It has literally energy security that can be created. Now, (laughs) In Ireland, there shouldn't be a discussion about food security because Ireland has no excuse for food insecurity because it has a food surplus. And yet we know historically that does not guarantee food in Ireland. Um, we, we, we produce like we produce technically enough food to feed 50 million people. Unfortunately, we use most of that food to feed cattle for export. <laughs> Yes, and, and, and but, the, but I make the point, Ireland should have no problem with this issue. In the UK, we don't have that luxury. Um, and, we, and we do face food insecurity. Going back to your question, Marty, uh, when does this tip over? When people can't feed their children, when they can't do that. The other place time this is going to tip over is when they realise they can't afford, afford to buy their kids Christmas presents. Because yeah. there isn't a parent who doesn't want to meet their child's hopes for Christmas. Um, they will try to do that come hell or high water. And then, therefore, come January, the bills will be just unbelievable. And the crisis is really going to hit. So I think that it's probably January when things are going to begin to kick off. It's always the worst month of the year for the, the debt support charities in the UK, because the January pay comes in, the bills are vastly high, and nobody knows how to balance the books. But this time, the scale of that mismatch is going to be phenomenal. The, you know, the, the, debt, the, the doorstep lenders, the unofficial lenders are going to be pushing for repayment. Um, and the trainers, which the kids have got, or whatever else they were bought for Christmas, will have had the glow already passed by. And, but the parents will have felt good about giving them. And now the crisis will hit. And at that moment, when the food can't get on the table, the bills can't be paid, and the debts have got to be repaid for paying for Christmas, everything is going to hit the fan. And at that moment, I think that's when we face the real risk. Now, normally, you'd say people in the UK, if they're going to get stroppy, will do it in the middle of summer because it's light and it's hot. And they people don't go out in the rain in the UK. They don't, well, they have to get used to going out in the rain in Ireland or you'd never go out, would you? <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> but I've lived there for long enough. Come on. <laughs> Quite a number of years experience. Tell me that. <laughs> um, but in the UK, people don't go try to go out in the rain. Um, look, and I live in the driest part of the UK. Um, 
I don't think that's going to be the rule this time. I think January is when the trouble starts. I, I think we're going to. I think we're going to suffer contagion. I, I think we are going to suffer contagion. You know, if you think about it, if it kicks off in the UK, it'll kick off somewhat in Northern Ireland. And once it's on the island, it's on the island. That's it, really. I think we will suffer contagion. We have all the same problems. Um, yet we're not talking about solutions. And we're not even talking about the problems in any great meaningful way. Can I, can can I, I be clear? You? Actually, look, let's be honest. I'm, I'm doing quite a lot of radio in the UK at present. Um, I've done the BBC on Monday, you know, the biggest listened to uh, programme on Radio 2. I did James O'Brien on LBC yesterday, the most listened to independent uh, commentary station uh, and the biggest listened to programme on independent radio in the UK. And I'm saying this sort of thing I'm saying here now, that this is a catastrophe in the making. And the producers say, could you turn your it down a bit could you say something a little bit more moderate this is this okay richard stop catastrophizing the catastrophe <laughs> yeah i mean because i'm catastrophizing catastrophe is absolutely right and i'm saying look I'm probably understating how bad it's going to be because I don't think anyone's going to believe me if I state how bad it's really going to be. But my point is that it is absolutely that bad and contagion is going to happen. But what I do, and I look, I mean, I, my friend Danny Blanchflower, um, Danny um, was on the Monetary Policy Committee and was one of its most awkward members ever. And he was around during the 2008 crisis and argued with the rest of the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee all the way through that crisis um, and got quite a reputation for being an awkward guy. Well, Danny and I get on very well with each other, basically because we're both awkward guys, but we do something consistent. He actually wrote a paper, which I love, called The Economics of Walking About. And what the economics of walking about means is that you actually don't sit and write formulas all day and prove that everything can be all right mathematically. You actually go and ask people, what do you think about the world? How do you think things are going to work out? What's going to happen? I reckon one of my best economic advisors is my barber. Um, and actually, I need to go and see him quite often to find out what's going on, because he, of course, has a steady flow of people through the shop. And he tells me what those people, many of whom are self-employed or working in smaller businesses around the area, are thinking right now. Um, I go and talk to people I know, um, not just here, but around the country and have a chat and say to them what's happening, because they give a better indication. And if you look at consumer indexes at the moment, people think that we are deep in trouble. We have the worst level of consumer confidence ever recorded in the UK, worse than 1970. And this uh, has run since 1974. We are way down on anything ever before because people think what's coming their way is going to be dire. And that's what before they really appreciate what's going to happen. I and think, even, um, sorry, Richard, just it's, it's funny because I would say that yourself and maybe Constantine Gordy have come from different angles on a lot of things. Yet he made the point to us um, a few months ago, Martin. He said, "He said all of this data he could provide us, all of this uh, analytics he could provide us, won't tell you as much as going into town and standing on the street corner yeah, and watching the people. Exactly are, are they carrying their shopping? How how happy they are? Are their heads up? Are the, are the business? Are the, sh- are the are the windows clean? Are the businesses open? All of these things, these indicators, and." They are the indicators that tell us that things are not good in in the real economy, not you know, not in the the headline rate. It tells us beyond that. One last question for for me, Richard, is you referred to interest rates going up again. We've seen, and you were really well well explained the destructive, <laughs> the, 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 the creative destruction that they're obsessed with, and similar, by the way, in the Fed. And now we're going to see yeah. estimates now where we were talking about the ECB going up by half a percent at the end of September. But the rumor is now it's 0.75% of, 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 a, of a hike. We're seeing scary rate of hikes here. This, are, are the people in charge pulling these financial levers? Do they... they did I just accept that there's going to be, you know, well, this will increase unemployment. It'll increase, uh, it'll it'll hurt things, but this is actually for the greater good down the line. Is this is this an actual Western economy um, thing that's been that's been baked in for the next eighteen months? I fear so. We're suffering from the most enormous groupthink amongst central bankers. Remember, central bankers are all basically shared the same education. 
They've all been to very many similar universities. It's the Ivy League in the States. It's here, it's Oxbridge. They all live around the capital cities of the places because they're all drawn from the, you know, the, the same community. I mean, the, the Bank of England is extraordinary. They're almost all Oxbridge and they all live in London and the Southeast. They're all paid £250,000 a year or more um, on the Bank of England. The governor is paid over half a million. Some of the external ones are pretty well paid too, I'm sure. And they're very comfortable. And everybody they know is very comfortable. They can all, without a doubt, pay their bills, whatever happens. They just don't get it. They're not going outside and walking around. Danny and I call ourselves the Mile End Road economists. The Mile End Road is actually a road out of the city of London, Aldgate, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of the old city walls heading out towards the East End. And the Mile End is exactly one mile out. And the point is that if you actually know the Mile End Road, and I do, I mean, my wife worked in the London Hospital, which is on the Mile End Road at one time, and I've driven it so many times um, because it was on the way from when I was living in South London to my parents' home up in East Anglia. Um, you know, this road gives you all the indication of the changes you need to see. These people don't realise that one mile out from where they are making their decisions, there is a completely different world where people are struggling to make ends meet. And we worry about the woman on the Mile End Road omnibus, because um, that's the person we always think about. Is this policy going to work? The the bankers don't think about that. And is the ECB going to increase rates by more than a half percent? Almost certainly. Why? Because they're fetished about the value of the euro against the dollar. The euro is worth less than a dollar. Therefore, they've got to try and restore some degree of strength to the euro again. So they'll push up interest rates, even though that process will be wholly destructive for the European economy, the economy of Ireland and everywhere else, because these people are in some form of trench warfare to try and prove their virility. My rate is bigger than yours. It's the old boys game. And they are literally that stupid because they don't care about the consequences. And I'm sorry, this is absolutely indifference to the needs of real people that we're seeing going on here. We are in late stage neoliberal capitalism. Now, I'm not a Marxist, although I have read Marx, um, because it's rather hard to be in my job and not have read Marx, let's be blunt. Um, And, you know, Marx said that capitalism had the capacity to eat itself fundamentally. I mean, I summarise a little bit there. But we are looking at the situation where this form of capitalism, at least, looks as though it's about to eat itself alive. And the people are going to have to actually bring in the kill of this. Maybe the people who will have to go out and protest about it because they can literally cannot feed their children. And my fear is that that might happen. I am a Quaker. I am therefore by nature a pacifist. I am anti-violence. I am not in favour of any anything which is going to be disruptive of people's well-being. But I'm also in favour of making sure that everybody can live, uh, because that's one another aspect of it. And in that sense, I am determined that people should have the opportunity to live. They're being denied it. The bankers are going to be party to that. They are part of the problem. And their attempts at virility signalling, which is what's going on through the interest rate, at harm to the rest of us, is desperately destructive. Can I just summarize what you've said, really, Richard? And I'm going to be really blunt. Class war is in full swing. Yes. And that's what's going on. There's a class war. It's in full swing. And just before we let you go, I'm going to give you a giggle. You mentioned the wages of the uh, central bankers. In Ireland during the week, we had a banking representative, and he said that there were graduates coming out of banking who wouldn't work for less than 500,000 euros in Ireland. The really funny bit about it is that the major banking representative in Ireland is a former minister of, like, is it the chair is still fucking hot where he was in the doll, you know, he's that long out of it. Now, they didn't say it was him. But you put two and two together, and you have I, a former I, government minister. I, I was invited. I was. I was invited on TV to debate that individual, um, and it never happened because other other things other things came up. But the interesting thing I would have enjoyed was I would have because we have a cap on banker pay here since the crash. 
Yes. And I'm not exactly in favor of, of caps on pay. So so we they do this, you know, they RT ring you up and they say, what would you say if we said this to you? And I said, well, I would I would say, you know, lift the cap by all means, throw them out into the market, let them let them fend for themselves. I said, because the average salary of, say, one in, in the city of London is 178,000, whereas in, in Ireland, it, it it's it's capped at half a half a million. Yeah. Go fend for yourselves, folks, yeah. you know. Um, but the, this idea then was, yeah, so it really ver- it is very much a case of, well, we've 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 uh you know, maybe upwards of 160, 170 people who just want to be paid more than half a million euro. That's that's what's going yeah. on here. Um, and they wouldn't get the same money if they were in Manchester or Birmingham or, you know, they might get it in France and Paris if they're in the in the it's financial sector. Lucky. Yeah. But yeah, this is my point. You know, like it's just tiny, tiny selection of society we're talking about here. Yeah. 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 And, and, these and people, let's go back to something I said earlier. These people do not go walking about. They only talk to each other. They live in this microcosm, which is just their own little bubble. And they think that their bubble represents the real world. It doesn't. And they're going to destroy the rest of us to try and maintain their bubble. Yeah, but, uh, the, I but, but, but no, but the one thing I will say, which is unfair about this whole thing is that, is that if we had a pay dispute, Martin, we wouldn't get a piece in the Irish Times to to, to talk about it. No. So it's, it's no, absolutely no. insane that this tiny bubble of people can agitate, jump up and down, and then become a a, a, a piece in, you know, the, the so-called paper of record. You see, I have more faith in, in both Irish people and people in the UK than you would have, Richard. I think when push comes to shove, it's that small group that will suffer. And, and they At will. At the end, it will be. Yes. It will be, because there is going to have to be change. I mean, let's be blunt. This is unsustainable. That's the key message. What we've got is clearly unsustainable. And that's what I mean by saying this is eating itself. It's got to the point where there is nothing left to give. They can't exploit for much longer. And therefore, those people are going to have to make way to let people survive. Because the choice is they can survive, that tiny bubble can survive, or people can survive. And when they bring it down as bluntly as that, and that's the choice they're giving people, People are going to say we have got to survive. Yeah, Most it's a numbers it. game at that. It's stage. a numbers game, and there will have to be change here. And it's deeply uncomfortable. I mean, I never thought I'd be talking in this way. Um, I didn't expect it, but it's got to happen. Richard Murphy, thanks for coming on, talking revolution, talking class war. Uh, really enjoyed that conversation. And keep in touch, Richard. We will. Uh, we will keep the two tins and a bit of string going just in case you lose communications <laughs> over there. And thank you very much for coming on and having this conversation with us this morning. Thank you. Listen, folks, we're back tomorrow with, and I, I, I this is me being a nerd now. If you recall the, the engineer who put a helicopter on Mars, the man literally made history, Loe Lo, El Bassani is rejoining us to talk about the fact that we're 50 years later, the NASA want to go back to the moon and Project Artemis and, and the work that's going on there. Delighted to be talking to him again. If you know him, he's an absolutely out of this world type of character. Um, there was one, I don't know if you saw Martin recently, you know, the for, some of the fires that were happening in California, they were trying to do the, put out forest fires and, and yes. bush fires. Who, who was flying drones to help them? Um, I, I presume. I, presume I mean, was, this, yeah. this man is larger than life. Um, born, born, born in Palestine. Um, father a doctor treating people like just an amazing backstory can't wait to talk to him again we will be back as i said as soon as soon as we can get him on the line talk to you all very soon take care bye-bye tony and martin martin and tony speaking to interesting people only it's the echo chamber podcast subscribe now on page